Good morning. Everybody doing okay? I see you all survived the latest round of winter weather. Congratulations. You made it. Um, I'm glad you're here. As I um, like to begin, there's, I'd say there's no better place to be on the Lord's Day than the Lord's house with the Lord's people, and that's where we are. So I'm glad that you're here. Um, you may hear a little bit of a, a frog in the throat. Um, we'll see how that goes. Um, we'll, get, we'll go until we get to the end of the text or the end of the voice, whichever, whichever comes first. Um, we're going to be this morning at the end of chapter 5 of uh, John's Gospel. You may have noticed, if you've been around, that we made a transition uh, with the beginning of chapter 5 from a, 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 a thematic from a thematic standpoint. The first four chapters we entitled uh, Glory Revealed, and then we made a transition to Glory Displayed with the beginning of chapter 5, as we've seen Jesus go more public with his ministry. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 5, just to get you up to speed, uh, at the beginning of chapter 5, we see Jesus in Jerusalem for a feast. He encounters a man who has been an invalid for 38 years, and he heals him. He tells the man, get up and walk. Take up, take up your bed and walk. And the man does that. This man who has been un- unable to walk for 38 years is instantly healed. He gets up and picks up his bed, and he walks. And as he's walking out, he is confronted by the Jewish leadership who are concerned that he is violating their Sabbath traditions by carrying this load, this bed, on the Sabbath day. And they ask him, well, who told you to do that? And he says, I'm, I'm not really sure. This man healed me and told me to do it. And then later, this man encounters Jesus in the, uh, in the temple. Jesus gives him further instruction. And then the man goes to the Jewish leadership and says, oh, I know who the man was now. It was this man, Jesus. And then the Jewish leaders go to confront Jesus and ask him why he told this man to violate the Sabbath. And not only that, why was he, why was he healing people on the Sabbath? Why was he working on the Sabbath? And Jesus made this very simple statement. He said, my father is working, and I am working. And with that simple statement, he changed everything. You see, the the Jewish leaders understood exactly what he was saying. In fact, it says that the Jewish leaders were not not only incensed that he was violating the Sabbath, but now they are murderous. Now their intent is to kill him because he is making himself equal with God. And then last week, picking up in verse 19, Chris took us through the passage, the beginning of this passage. We're actually at part two of what Jesus had to say in response to this accusation. Uh, It's interesting to me that when Jesus responds to the accusation, he does not do anything to deny it. In fact, everything we see after it is an affirmation of their accusation. In fact, it's as if he's saying, yes, that's exactly true. I am making myself equal with God, and here are the ways in which I am equal with God. Chris made the point that when Jesus began to speak, it says that Jesus said, that word that's translated said is more perhaps appropriately translated as Jesus answered. He's answering in a legal sense. And in verses 19 through 29, he lays out his case of all the ways in which he is equal with God. And as we pick up this morning in verse 30, we're going to see that he's keeping, he's staying with that, that legal theme. He is now going to present witnesses that corroborate his testimony. So that's where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 30 this morning of John chapter 5. I'm going to make a couple of observations before we begin. Um, There's a transition here in verse 30. Verse 30 sort of acts as a bridge between um, the two sections, the the laying out of the case and then um, the testimony that follows. This is what it says in verse 30. 
Jesus still speaking. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again, I think this is a transitional statement. The one thing that stuck out to me is that when Jesus begins speaking, he uses the word I. And the reason that's important is because in the passage between 19 and 29, there's only one time where he refers to himself in the first person. That's in verse 24. For the, for the remainder of that passage, between 19 and 29, as he lays out this case of the reasons why he is, in fact, equal with God, he refers to himself as the Son of God. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. He, he uses pronouns like he. And it's as if Jesus, as he begins to lay out the, the testimony, the witnesses that he's going to present, he wants to make abundantly clear, wants to make sure there's no ambiguity, there's no uncertainty, who it was that he was speaking about when he talked about this son of man, this son of God who was equal with God, who was and is equal with God. He says, it was me. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There's this, there's this connection between Jesus and the Father and I don't think it's so much like father, like son. There's something deeper going on here. It's not as if Jesus observes what, what the father is doing and then he, he mimics him. No, it's, it's something far deeper than that. And this is the way um, C.S. Lewis puts, this is, puts it. This is um, from Mere Christianity. And he's writing about the, uh, the relationship between father and son, as only Lewis can do. He writes this. Christians believe that the living, dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. And that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions, that in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. That's why Jesus will say when we get to chapter 10 in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And that's what we're seeing in this context of this, of this defense that Jesus is making and the testimony that he is bringing. Um, one final thing before we get into the text itself. Uh, there are a number of different ways one could approach this particular text. I'm indebted to um, James Hamilton, who wrote the, the, he's the author of the commentary on the Gospel of John in the ESV expository commentary series. That's a mouthful. He um, pointed out this chi a chiastic structure. If you've been around at all at Remedy for a while, you've seen chiastic structures. Just to make it simple, a chiasm works from the outside in, and there are parallels on either end, and you work your way toward the center, and that's where the main point is, the, the apex, the climax, if you will. I think we may have a picture of that. Yeah, there it is. That's the way um, it's laid out. I'm, and again, I'm indebted to Dr. Hamilton for this structure begins with true testimony, which is paralleled by true accusation, followed by truth, light, and rejoicing. That's paralleled with joy and love and faith. 
It has the testimony of the Father and works paralleled with the testimony of the Word. And then in the center, at the climax, at the apex, Jesus simply makes the statement, you don't know God. It, 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 it's, a, it's a sobering moment. In the, in the midst of all the testimony that Jesus is bringing forth, he says to these Jewish leaders, you think you know God, but you don't really know him. So that's where we're going to be this morning. Let me, um, let me read our text for us. If you are able and can stand to honor God's word, again, we're going to pick up in verse 30 and go through the end of the chapter. Jesus speaking, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he is borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I did not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Just one more thing. Um, I love to recommend resources when I can. This is a book that I found at the beginning of this year. It's called Be Thou My Vision, a Liturgy, a Liturgy for Daily Worship. The reason I bring it up is because it includes in the daily liturgy a prayer uh, for illumination. And the prayer for illumination is read before the uh, reading of the word as we begin to, as we prepare to receive the word, I'd like to use this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. Pray with me. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick up in verse 31. This is the beginning, uh, the, 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 the first A in our, in our chiastic structure. Jesus begins with a very curious statement. He says this in verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Seems like Maybe not, if you're beginning to set up testimony to, to corroborate your evidence, maybe not the strongest way to begin. Jesus begins by saying that, my, that his testimony, as he speaks, is not true. And it's also interesting because 
as we make our way through the gospel, when we get to, uh, to chapter 8, Jesus is, all, is again going to be confronted by the Jewish leaders, and they're going to say to him, you're bearing witness about yourself, your testimony is not true. This is in John chapter 8. Uh, and Jesus answers this, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. So, so which is it? When we get to chapter 14, Jesus is going to not only say that he speaks the truth, but that he is the truth. I think we can, we can sit here this morning and know that we can rely on Jesus' testimony. So what is it that he's saying when he says that his testimony is not true? Uh, if you look back, I have a, actually the ESV I have here is an older version. I don't know when it's from, you know, like the early 2000s. And um, it actually translates the verse this way. It says, if, uh, the, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Now, that word deemed is not in the original text, which is why I think when they did their final version, they took the word out. They just wanted to be faithful to what the text actually says. But when they put the word deemed in there, when the translators used the word deemed, I think they were making an interpretive choice. They were trying to explain a little bit what it was that Jesus was saying. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that in a legal sense, that his testimony as a person testifying about himself is not going to be accepted. And that's just, that's just a fact of the Jewish law. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, it says this, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So I think that's, in a sense, what Jesus is saying here. Remember, he's speaking in a legal way. He's saying, if I testify for myself, that is not going to be accepted as legal testimony. And I think also, in a sense, it's just an acknowledgement of his expectation of how his testimony is going to fall on the ears of the people that are hearing. He's just being real. I'm going to testify. I'm going to speak for myself. You're not going to accept it. You're not going to see it as true. But he goes on because he has other witnesses as well. He says in verse 32, there's another who bears witness about me. And I know that his testimony, the testimony that he bears about me is true. That begs the question, who is this another? Who is this other person that he's talking about? You, you might think it's pointing forward because in the next verse, he's going to talk about the testimony of John. I suppose that's possible. I, I don't see it that way. I think in context, when we're looking at pronouns, we try to find the antecedent. I'm an English teacher, so that's the way it works. Uh, we try to find the antecedent of the pronoun. And in this context, the antecedent of the pronoun is in verse 30. It's him who sent me which, of course, we know is the Father. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that the Father's testimony is reliable. The Father's testimony is, is true testimony. And then on the, on the other end of our, of our chiasm in verse 45, we have parallel to Jesus' testimony, we have uh, accusation. Picking up in, uh, in verse 45, and Jesus really makes a transition here between sort of a defense attorney defending himself and a prosecutor accusing those Jewish leaders that he's talking to. Jesus says this in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. It's as if he's saying, I'm not testifying for myself. 
And I'm, not also, and I'm also not bringing the accusation. He says, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, Jesus doesn't testify on his own behalf. He doesn't accuse. He lets Moses do the talking. It's almost as if Moses is now acting as a witness for the prosecution. He says that they have set their hope in Moses. They've also proved that they don't really believe Moses. They don't really take Moses at his word because they don't believe in Jesus. Uh, I read a commentary by F.F. Bruce, and this is what Bruce says. He says that the testimonies of Moses and Jesus are so closely interrelated that to believe one is to believe the other. To refuse one is to refuse the other. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's, as, he, as he begins to lay out this case, he's saying you have both testimony and you also have accusation. He says that Moses wrote of him. He says that when Moses wrote, he was writing about Jesus. We've already seen that. Remember back when, uh, when Jesus was calling his disciples back in chapter 1, he calls Philip. Philip is all super excited, and he goes and finds his, finds his friend Nathaniel. This is in chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 45. And it says that Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So we've already seen that in our gospel, John has begun to lay the case that Moses spoke about Jesus, that, that Moses wrote about Jesus. Reminded me of the story um, that Luke tells at the end of his gospel, after the resurrection. You might remember the story. There are two men walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they encounter Jesus. They don't know it's him. And Luke tells us that in their conversation, Jesus begins to explain to them what, was, what, is, what has happened. They're, they're pretty down in the mouth about, this, about their, their um, rabbi having been crucified. And they'd heard about this resurrection thing, but they're not really sure that it happened. And it says, Luke says, that in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later on in that same chapter, Jesus shows up with the disciples, and they're still a little bit confused about, about what's going on. And Jesus says this to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You see, it's, it's just a fact of the matter. When Moses wrote, he was writing about Jesus, and there's a, there's a way in which believing what Moses wrote is the same as believing in Jesus, and vice versa. If you don't believe Jesus and you don't believe Moses, you're not, you're, they, they were demonstrating their unbelief of Moses and what he had written through their disbelief in, in Jesus. And we pick up on the next point of the chiasm in verse 33. I'm calling this light and glory. He begins bringing up more testimony. It says in 33, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. We see that again back in chapter 1. 
not going to go through it in any great detail, but we saw back in chapter 1 that, that the Pharisees sent a delegation to John to find out who he was. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Who are you? Why are you out here baptizing? And of course, at that time, John testified. He said, no, I'm, I'm not the Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Then, as we continue, to see that he says... Um, They asked him, why are you baptizing? He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm unworthy to tie. And then the next day he sees Jesus coming and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In verse 32, it says that John bore witness. His witness was this, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen, and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. So there it is, the witness of John as recorded in chapter 1. But we can go even further back than that. You remember when John was introduced? He was actually introduced in the prologue, also in chapter 1, but even earlier. This is what John the Apostle wrote about John the Baptist in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. There's a sense in which that was John's entire mission. He came as a witness. So it's no surprise, I guess, that we see him listed here in Jesus' testimony, the testimony about Jesus. He says in verse 34, not that, I, not that the testimony I receive is from man. In other words, Jesus doesn't require the testimony of people. Jesus is in himself self-authenticating. He could have testified about himself, and that would have been truth. But then he makes this very intriguing statement. He says, I I don't receive testimony from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. I don't receive testimony from man. Uh, There's a man who came, his name was John, and this was his testimony. I'm not receiving his testimony, and yet I'm saying these things so that you may be saved. I think what Jesus is saying here, and, and, and the reality is, that, that God doesn't really need us. I'm sorry to break that to you. God doesn't really, He doesn't need our testimony. He's self-authenticating. But the good news is that He uses us. Even though He doesn't need us, He uses us. He uses us as, as means by which people can be saved. Again, remember what was written about John back in the prologue. It says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. I guess the question is, who is the, who's the Him? Well, this is what John MacArthur writes about that. He says that Him, in this verse, refers not to Christ, but to John as the agent who witnessed to Christ. The purpose of his testimony was to produce faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. 
Let me say that again. The purpose of John's testimony was to produce faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. You see, John used, uh, Jesus used, God used John's testimony as a means by which faith was produced in people. That's an astounding thing to me. Because God doesn't need us, but He uses us. And just as He used John's testimony to produce faith in people who were lost, He can also use our testimony for the same purpose. Before we walk out of this place this morning, we're going to quote the Great Commission. Just as John was commissioned, just as John was sent to bear witness, we also have been sent to bear witness. That's what the Great Commission says. So just as John came to bring faith, to produce faith in others, God can use us. He can use our testimony, our words, our witness as a means by which He brings others to faith. I think that's a pretty amazing thing. It's pretty exciting. As we leave this place this morning, as we encounter people out there in the world, we have the opportunity through our words to be a means by which God produces faith in them. It's miraculous. What a great privilege. He says in verse 35 that John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Again, I think making the point that John was not the light, what he said in verse 8 of chapter 1. John wasn't the light. He came to bear witness about the light. So he calls him a lamp, a means by which light is, is produced, a, a burning and shining lamp. And then he makes this statement. It's a very sobering statement. It almost sense the wistfulness in Jesus' voice. You were willing to rejoice for a while, for a while in his light. It's as if they went from rejoicing at the coming of John to, to rejection. John's really in good company because the same thing is going to happen to Jesus. As we make our way into chapter 6 and the weeks that follow, we're going to see that Jesus attracts a great following. He feeds 5,000 people, and those 5,000 people are so excited about that gift of food that they want to make Him king. And then later on, Jesus comes back and encounters many from that same crowd, and he begins to speak to them. And as he speaks to them, more and more begin to fall away because the words that he has to speak to them are difficult. They're hard to understand. They're hard to accept. And by the time we get to, uh, to verse 66 of chapter 6, John makes this statement. After this, Many of his disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. After this, many of his disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. People that identified Jesus as their, as their master, as their rabbi, as he spoke to them, as he expounded, they more and more and more fell away until we get to the point where Jesus just turns to the twelve. Everyone else is left. And, and he's left with just the 12, and he asks them, are, are, are you going to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? And Peter has the words that I, I, I pray are our words. 
Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But there's a sense there that, uh, that there, was a, there was some excitement. There was even rejoicing in the coming of John. Excitement in his testimony, and it was only, it was only for a while. I think in this we have, we have both an indictment, an indictment of the, of the people that were gathered there this morning, but I think there's also a word of warning and caution in this for us. Isn't there? I mean, are we so much different? Are we so different from those people who, who rejoice in something for a while and then, and then walk away? It, it reminded me of the story that Jesus tells, the parable of the soils, talks about the different kind of soils, the soil by the path and the rocky soil and the, and the thorny soil. And he says about the rocky soil that, well, this is what he says. I'll, I'll read it to you. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So I think it's easy for us to stand in judgment of these religious leaders, but it's also a cautionary tale for us. It's a cautionary tale for us. This is the way um, the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians. Remember in Ephesians chapter 4, he's writing and telling about the, what... what uh, the, the different roles in the church, the leadership roles. And he writes this. He says, uh, And he, Jesus, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. He talks about unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and, and attaining maturity. And then he says this in verse 14. The reason for all this is so that... We may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. I think that's, in a sense, what's happening here with these folks that are hearing from John. They were willing to hear his message for a while, but then they were ready to move on to the next thing, you know, the sort of the flavor of the month, the next big movement. I think... There's a sense in which we're all prone to do that. That's it's human nature. Our attention spans are very short. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that we need to be in it for the long haul. And then in verse 41, the other side of, the, of that uh, chiastic structure, it says that Jesus doesn't need human testimony, and he also doesn't seek human glory. He says this in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Yeah, Jesus doesn't need glory. He doesn't seek human glory. And he, he sets up this contrast between himself and the people that he's talking to, these Jewish leaders. He says that his accusers receive glory from one another, that they're, that they're out to get the glory of others, and yet they disregard this greater glory 
that comes from the only God. They disregard this glory that is, that is eternal. They're, they're seeking this temporal glory from other people, and yet they, they disregard, they almost reject the glory that is coming through God Himself. Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2 says this, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Jesus says, you're, you're looking for glory in the wrong place. He says that he comes in his Father's name. He comes to do his Father's will, and yet he's rejected. And then others come in their own names and, and in their own self-interest, and they're accepted. It's evidence, he says, of their lack of love. It's evidence of their, of their lack of faith. And then he presents even further evidence. Back in verse 36, he says, there is greater testimony, greater testimony than the testimony of John, testimony that comes through the works that he is doing. Remember, we, we bring this up frequently, but John tells us in chapter 20 the purpose for which he wrote. He tells us that he wrote, that he recorded these signs so that his hearers, so that his readers would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they would have life in his name. That's again what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm, I'm doing all of these works. I am presenting to you all of, these, all of these signs, and they're all evidence that I'm the Christ. They're evidence that I'm the Son of God. These signs, in a sense, testify. The signs are witnesses. I think, again, it's to remind us that when Jesus works, He's doing the works that the Father has given Him to accomplish. That's what He's been saying all along. He said it at the very beginning of this, uh, of this testimony that He has begun to produce. And then He says this in verse 37. He says, The Father who sent Me Himself has borne witness about Me. The Father who sent me, has himself borne witness about me, the the greatest testimony perhaps of all. Well, maybe not perhaps. The, The greatest testimony of all is that he receives the testimony from the Father. Well, it makes you think of of the times that Jesus was testified to by the Father in an audible voice at, at His baptism when when the voice came from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. To a much smaller audience, when he was at his transfiguration, and Jesus uh, and God says something similar about Jesus, I think that perhaps is part of what he's talking about here. But I don't think it's the, the biggest thing he's talking about. You see, when God testifies, His greatest witness comes not through His audible voice; His greatest testimony comes through His word. His greatest testimony comes through His Word. This is what um, Jesus says in verse 39. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they who bear witness about Me. And I think it's, it's, it's true that when the Scriptures testify, it is, it is as if God is testifying because the Scriptures are God's Word. So there's a relationship between the testimony of the Father and the testimony of the Scriptures. 
You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Jesus says you're mistaken. You think you find eternal life in scriptures, but eternal life is not found in the scriptures themselves. It's, it's found in the one that they bear witness to. It's, it's as if their, their search of the scriptures terminates with the word. And doesn't look through the Word to the one that is that the Word testifies to. We, we've encountered a concept like this before. If you remember at the end of chapter 2, there were many who believed in Jesus because of the signs that He was doing. It says that Jesus did, Himself did not entrust Himself. He didn't, they believed in Him, but He didn't believe in them. It's because their, their faith was deficient because it terminated on the signs. I think something similar is being said here. Saying you're you're terminating your faith on on the scripture and not looking through the scripture to the one that the scripture points to. They're, they're failing to come to the living word. The same John who wrote this um, this gospel also wrote some letters. And this is what he writes in first John chapter five. This is in verse, starting in verse 10. Whoever, belie- whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's as simple as that. If you don't accept the testimony of the Word, if you don't look through the... If you search the Scriptures and terminate on the Scriptures, if you don't look through the Scriptures to the one that Scriptures point to, then you don't have life. Again, these are, these are sobering words. When we fail to come to the living word, when, we, when, our, when our faith somehow terminates on the written word, then we are not coming to him, and therefore we don't have life. This is, um, this is the way D.A. Carson puts it, commenting on these verses. He writes this, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures So by not believing in Jesus, the Scripture experts show that they have not rightly understood and obeyed the Scriptures. There is nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the Scriptures if one fails to discern their content and purpose. Jesus, not Scripture itself, imparts life. Or this, this is from Warren Wearsby. The very scriptures that the Jewish leaders used to defend their religion would one day bear witness against them. The Jews knew what Moses wrote, but they did not really believe what he wrote. It is one thing to have the word in our hands or in our heads, but quite another to have it in our hearts. Jesus is the word made flesh, and the written word bears witness to the incarnate word. And again, I think there's a sense here that we see an indictment 
of the Jewish leaders that Jesus is speaking with. But I think there is also for us, for those of us who love God's word, there's, there's, a, there's a note of warning here. How easy might it be for us to be so enthralled, to be so entranced with, with, with the written word and the scripture and the, and the study of it and growing in the knowledge of it, that we have God's word in our hands, we might even have God's word in our heads, but somehow it doesn't make that, you know, 10-inch descent and become part of our hearts. So again, I, I think it, it can be easy for us to stand in judgment of these people that Jesus is talking to, but it's not just them, it's, it's us. Which brings us to, thankfully, the pinnacle, the apex, the climax of this chiasm in verses 37 and 38, the end of verse 37. Jesus writes this, his voice, you have never, his voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen. You do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. And that's the pinnacle. That's the point that Jesus was trying to get to. That despite all of this evidence, despite all of the evidence that Jesus has laid out, the, the testimony of John, the testimony of the works, the testimony of the word, the testimony of the Father Himself, Despite all these witnesses, they still don't believe. Because they don't believe, they, they, don't, they don't hear or see the Father. I think the order there is important. He says, you don't, you don't hear Him and you don't see Him because you don't believe. They don't, he doesn't say you don't believe because you don't hear and see. You see, I think in a true sense, believing is seeing. Believing is hearing. And again, I think it's easy for us to sit in judgment, but when we get to chapter 14, Jesus is going to have an encounter with His disciples, with the twelve, the ones who remain. He takes them into an upper room, and He has a conversation with them. And in the midst of this conversation, He has this encounter with Philip. He says this, if I can find it. begins with familiar passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. To see me is to see the Father. That's, that's the irony here in this passage. As they stand before Jesus, as they, as they see His form, as they hear His words, they are seeing the Father. But believing is seeing. Believing is hearing. So they don't truly see Him. They don't truly hear Him. One commentator puts it this way. The voice of God is, of course, the Christ Himself. The form of God, too, is the Christ. 
The hostile Jews have failed to see in Jesus the voice and the form of God. They have failed through unbelief. Jesus does not deny that in a sense they have the word of God. What he does say is they do not have this word in their hearts as an abiding possession. They were not able to see because the veil of unbelief was lying upon the eyes of their hearts. So I leave you with, uh, with this this morning. There are, there are really just two kinds of people. There are people that know God and people that don't. There are people that know Him and there are people that don't know Him. And sitting here this morning, I don't know where you stand or sit. My prayer for each one of you here is that you have seen Him. That through faith in Christ, you have seen the Father. You have heard the Father. But again, I don't know you and I I can't see into your hearts. So let let me just let you know. If you're sitting here this morning and you say, no, I'm not sure that 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 I'm included in that first group, the people that know God, but I want to be, let me encourage you. If you would would ask God to give you the gift of faith, if you would ask Him to open your eyes, the eyes of your hearts, so that you could see Him and hear Him, I believe that's a prayer He would be pleased to answer. And if you're unsure, if you have questions, please, uh, you can come see me, see one of the elders, see the person who brought you or the person sitting next to you. My prayer is that you would not leave this place this morning without knowing Him. And then for the rest of us, which I think includes probably most, if not all of us, the ones who do know God, what about us? Have we reached some sort of destination? I would say, no, we have not. If we know God, we can know God more fully. If we know God, we can know God more deeply. We can see Him more clearly. We can hear Him more distinctly. There was a song. um, It was written by Steve Fry, recorded by Steve Green. I'm showing my age here. I'm trying to see if anybody out here knows who I'm talking about. The song simply said, the title of the song was, Oh, I Want to Know You More. The verses talk about those things that might get in the way of that, our, 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 our self-interest, our, our concentration and focus on materialism, just times when we feel distant and cold. And the chorus very simply says this, I'm tempted to sing it, but I'm a, I'm a little froggy this morning, so I'll just say the words. The chorus says, oh, I want to know you more. Deep within my soul, I want to know you. Oh, I want to know you, to, 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 to hear your voice and, and know your mind. Looking in your eyes stirs up within me cries that say, I want to know you. Oh, I want to know you more. May that be our prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith, and we thank you that you have opened our eyes to see Jesus and through him to see you and to know you because because he is God. Lord, I pray if there are those with us this morning who do not know you, that they would that they would come to know you. 
right here, right now in this place, may they, may, they, may they ask you, may they petition you, may they beg of you to reveal yourself to them, and may you do, do just that.